Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. President Andres Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO, as he is known, swept into office as president of Mexico with great fanfare and big promises. Has he lived up to them? And what has his presidency meant so far for Mexico-U.S. relations, Mexico-Israel relations, and Mexico's role in the region? Joining us now to discuss AMLO's impact is Dina Sigelvan director of AJC's Belfer Institute for Latino and Latin American Affairs. Dina, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation, Sethi. Now, President Andres Manuel López Obrador was supposed to be Mexico's answer to President Trump, right? AMLO was a populist who was going to be as left-wing as Trump is right. Has that come to be? Is he as far left as people were expecting? Sefi, I think that one of the interesting aspects of AMLO is that he's, you know, a leftist in the Mexican style. What that means is that he's hearkening back to policies and to a structure and a political environment that was prevalent several decades ago. Um, he is a leftist, but, but, but he's mostly a traditionalist in Mexican terms. Uh, He does have a vision for Mexico, which has to do with implementing very deep social transformations to tackle poverty, corruption, inequality, etc. And in that sense, you can say that he's a leftist, but he's more mainstream in that respect. He, um, with respect to uh, to Trump, he told us when we had an hour-long meeting a week ago in Mexico City, He told us that what he wants is to have a respectful, constructive relationship with President Trump. He understands that Mexico and the U.S. are interdependent and we are fated to work together because of geography. Um, And at the same time, he wants to implement his reforms and he doesn't want any distractions from outside. So he doesn't want to have any confrontation with uh, its neighbor to the north. Now, he's done a few interesting things, though, right, in that uh, I think he is turning the presidential palace or the executive mansion that the presidents used to live in into a museum or something. And, and he's just living in his apartment. And I think he's sold off the presidential plane and the presidential limo. He has minimal security, stuff like that. Right. He's taking a lot of symbolic steps to be a man of the people. Absolutely. You know, Mexican society is deeply traumatized because of the corruption that happened, especially during the last administration. Um, It was one of the worst chapters in Mexico's uh, recent history in terms of corruption. And he wanted to send a clear message about austerity and, you know, honesty. He really wants to show that he walks the walk and talks the talk. And so far, you know, many people might say, oh, these are populists you know, measures and, uh, you know, symbolic. But, you know, he has 87% of popularity, which is an etiquette, you know. So it has to do with this, you know, clear congruence between what he says and what he does and how he lives 
you know, being a public servant. And he's, in that sense, he's being very congruent. And I think that that's resonating strongly with Mexican society. Now, he's not just a stylistic change from Enrique Peña Nieto, the previous president. He he does have substantive differences as well, perhaps quite, quite a few of them. Um, how is AMLO going to be a different actor? You started to talk about this before with regards to Donald Trump, but how will he be a different actor in Mexican-U.S. relations? Yeah, as I said, I think that he understands very clearly that he needs the United States, that, as I say, you know, there's an interdependence, uh, not only geographic, but economic, cultural, familial. You know, there's uh, so many families on both sides of the border. um, And he really wants the U.S. to help him, for example, on the immigration front. You know, he knows that uh, they have that together with the, the countries of the Northern Triangle, meaning Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, which is where the countries where most immigrants are now coming to the United States, they're not coming from Mexico anymore. He needs the United States and those countries to develop the southern part of Mexico and that region in order to address the root causes of immigration and to prevent those immigrants from leaving their homelands and heading north. So in that sense, you know, he understands that he that, that the United States has to be a true ally, and therefore he doesn't want to have anything that distracts from those policies and from that vision he has in mind. Also, you know, with, with respect to trade, we're uh, about to head into a new chapter, the final chapter, in the implementation of the new USMCA, which is previously known as NAFTA, And uh, it has to be ratified in all of the three legislators. Um, It has to be ratified in Canada, in Mexico, and in the U.S. Congress. And in that respect, you know, he understands that if this is not passed, it will have a very deleterious effect on Mexico's economy, which is so dependent on on the U.S. economy. So, you know, he wants to find the right path to make sure that uh, he's own policies domestically are realized. He said to us that the best uh, foreign policy is domestic policy, meaning that he wants to make sure that Mexico cleans house, um, the country's on the right track, and then Mexico will be respected and will have a leadership role worldwide. I like that. The uh, the trade agreement formerly known as NAFTA. It reminds me of, uh, of Prince. Dina, um, <laughs> in addition to the U.S.-Mexico relations, we're also, of course, curious, you know, how will Mexico's relationship with Israel differ uh, under this new administration? Uh, relations between Israel and the U.S. are at the highest level. And, and Mexico. In Mexico, yes. I'm sorry. Mexico-Israel relations are at the highest levels. Really, I think that You know, the last years since the visit by Prime Minister Netanyahu to Mexico, which was a historical in Latin America, as you know, two years ago, he went to Argentina, Colombia and Mexico and Argentina, Brazil, Colombia and Mexico. And it really marked uh, before and after the ambassador, Ambassador Jonathan Pellet, who is there, has really done a, a formidable job in bringing relations to a new level. Trade is at a historical high. And even relations at the multilateral level have changed. In the Peña Nieto administration, there was a change. Mexico used to vote by default against Israel at the United Nations. 
And now, you know, there's several resolutions where Mexico abstains rather than voting against. And in fact, in December, it abstained in the resolution that was denouncing or criticizing the Trump administration for transferring the embassy to Jerusalem. Um, we heard from Foreign Minister Ebrard when we were with President López Obrador that relations with Israel will continue growing, that they see Israel as a strategic partner, and we think that that is going to be the case. On the other hand, we know that within the, uh, within the AMLO administration, there are voices that would like Mexico to go back to a foreign policy that is mostly pro-third world, which means, um, you know, anti-Israel. And we're not sure how that's going to be played out. But we do think that the current administration sees Israel as a value added in implemented some of the important policies that the president wants to advance, whether it be rural development, whether it be water management, whether it be security, which, as you know, is a huge problem in Mexico with rampant violence. Israel is seen as a, as a value added, and we hope that that will be reflected as well at the multilateral level. Now, it's interesting what you just said about forces pushing for Mexico to kind of regress in its foreign policy, because Mexico stands out as one of the only, if not the only country uh, in Latin America that I don't know if they are supporting Nicolas Maduro uh, remaining in power, but they're certainly not supporting Nicolas Maduro being removed from power in Venezuela. Um, where, exactly. Whereas, you know, many countries are saying, you know, certainly the, the organization of American states as a whole, the multilateral organization that includes uh, much of North and South America, is saying that it's time for Maduro to go and that Juan Guaido is the legitimate president. And uh, at least until uh, new elections are uh, new legitimate elections are called. Um, what, what are we to make of, of that? Yeah, Mexico for many, many years was Mexico's foreign policy, subscribed to what is called the Estrada Doctrine, which goes back to the 1930s, which is based on three principles, sovereignty, you know, respect for the sovereignty of each country, non-intervention, and resolution of conflicts through peaceful mm. means. And um, the, the current administration, they believe in negotiation. They believe in dialogue. They want to be mediators. They don't want to intervene or pass judgment on what's going on in Venezuela. And therefore, you know, um, having been very active in the Lima group, which was this group of countries in Latin America that were pushing for the return to democracy in Venezuela and the outing of President Maduro, um, now Mexico is an outlier and is, you know, uh, really not following what the rest of Latin America, the European Union, the United States and others are defending. So it is a pity in the sense that Mexico sees itself as really defending human rights. But if you're defending human rights, you cannot remain neutral. You cannot remain in the margins. And we don't know exactly how they're going to reconcile those two aspirations. But we do believe that Mexico, as one of the largest countries in the region, together with Brazil, they're the two largest, and they have always been vying for leadership. How can Mexico stay in the margins and not say anything when such an important subject, which is having already a, a tremendous impact all over the region, how can they stay in the margins? We think it would be a pity that Mexico doesn't take a much more active role 
and uh, we'll see how things play out. But uh, for the time being, Mexico is staying in the margins. Now, Dina, you're not just formulating these opinions from your office in in Washington, D.C. You actually were in Mexico City last week. Uh, You met with AMLO and with many other high-ranking officials. Can you tell our listeners about that mission? Who was on it? What was your goal? Tell us, you know, what was AJC doing in Mexico City? Of course, Jesse. Well, Mexico has been really a very important country for AJC's work. It's, of course, our southern neighbor, but it's also a very important strategic partner of the United States and of Israel. And it has a small but quite impressive Jewish community. I'm a member of that Jewish community. As you know, I was born and raised in Mexico City, and I was head of political affairs for that community for 15 years until I emigrated to the United States, so I know the country very well. And Mexican-Americans in this country make up the largest Latino diaspora, and I would say even not only Latino, but beyond Latino diaspora in the U.S. We're talking about 37 million Mexican-Americans today. So for many reasons, it's important for AJC's intergroup diplomatic advocacy work to travel on a regular basis to Mexico and to make sure that we have connections to important interlocutors in the country. For us, it was important to be there at the beginning of the AMLO administration to understand better the policies that this government will be implementing and its impact on the trilateral relationship among the United States, Mexico, and Israel. Uh, We also wanted to ensure that Mexican-Americans and American Jews through our Latino Jewish Leadership Council, which was founded by AJC, can continue really impacting policies in the U.S., whether on immigration, trade, security in the region. So these were some of the reasons why we were there, and it was quite an exceptional visit. We were 50 people, AJC leaders and Mexican-American leaders. Um, We met with experts of every political position, which was important for us to understand, you know, from different perspectives, the situation, the state of affairs in the country. We met with the U.S. Charge, the Israeli ambassador, the Archbishop of Mexico, which is the most important Catholic figure in the country, very influential figure, who, by the way, is a PI alum traveled with us and the Jewish community 15 years ago to Poland and to Israel, met with the foreign minister, and of course, the highlight was we're meeting, our long meeting with Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador. Uh, we were the first American Jewish organization to meet uh, with President López Obrador, and from what we understand, it was truly a feat because he really grants meetings to groups of our size Uh, So it was really something very, very special, I think very fruitful in terms of advancing AJC's, the Jewish people's and Israel's priorities. And if I'm not mistaken, we were actually the first meeting with the Jewish organization that AMLO took. So we actually, not to say that he was completely unknown to the Mexican Jewish community, he'd been mayor of Mexico City and, and doubtless had worked with the Jewish community prior, but we actually were able to introduce the Mexican Jewish community to President AMLO. More than introduced, I think that it was because, you know, as you said, you know, he knows, and in fact, he spoke very glowingly about the the Jewish community of Mexico. Um, He said something which was quite interesting. He said that the Mexican Jewish community, when he was in the opposition, 
the Jewish community was always very respectful um, and very plural. And, you know, that he appreciated that very much. Uh, but it was the first time that the Jewish community met with him as president. They had met with him as candidate, but they had not met with him as president. So we were very pleased that once again, as, as allies, as partners, together, you know, we were able to engage the president in conversation about issues that are of such importance, joint importance for the Mexican Jewish community and for us as AJC. And those kinds of partnerships with local Jews, with our own leadership from AJC here in the States, um, of course, with uh, with governments around the world and with Israel, it's at those moments doing that work where, uh, where AJC's diplomacy is most fruitful. Dina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Sefi, once again. It's time for our special Israeli elections segment. Each week through the upcoming general election on April 9th, we'll be bringing you an exclusive update on the race to determine who will be the next occupant of the prime minister's residence on Balfour Street in Jerusalem. This is the Battle for Balfour. If you're looking for a basic primer on the Israeli elections, please check out the January 3rd episode of AJC Passport featuring Lahav Harkov of the Jerusalem Post. Joining us today on the Battle for Balfour is Arik Rudnitsky, a scholar of Israeli-Arab society at the Israel Democracy Institute and the Moshe Dayan Center of Tel Aviv University. Arik, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So we're going to talk today about the Arab vote in Israel. But I think before we begin, it's important for us to define our terms. You know, when we talk about the Arab vote, what are we talking about? Uh, we, of course, speak on the Arab uh, citizens of uh, the state of Israel. And uh, to make it clear, uh, uh, the Arab vote is some 15% of the total Israeli electorate, meaning there are uh, slightly less than 1 million uh, eligible uh, voters. So uh, basically, they are under the general population. Uh, usually, the Arab population is somewhat uh, 21% of the total Israel population, but the Arab eligible voters are something like 15%. And what accounts for them voting under their percentage of the population? Does that correspond to the normal voter participation rates in Israel? Yes and no. Well, uh, there are some factors that uh, we can apply them to the general Israel population, such as political indifference, or they don't bother with the uh, parliamentary politics. But there are additional factors uh, because we see a trend that the Arab turnout is uh, between uh, 8 to uh, 15% lower than the general uh, turnout, the nationwide turnout. And of course, in the 2015 uh, election, we had a relatively high uh, turnout, 64%. It is had to do with the formation of the uh, joint list, which was a coalition of the four leading Arab parties in the Arab uh, sector. So in in just a moment, we'll focus on the Arab parties on the joint list and the other parties. But before we do, do we know what percentage of Arabs vote for one of the quote-unquote non-Arab parties? Typically, we can speak of an 80 to 20 division, meaning that 80% of the Arab votes vote for Arab parties or Arab non-Zionist parties. And the rest, uh, typically 20% vote for uh, Jewish Zionist parties. Uh, mainly they are Druze or Bedouins affiliated with the state authorities who serve in the uh, Israel Defense Forces. 
So this is typically the division that we've seen in the uh, passing decade or so. Mm-hmm. Now, Arik, you mentioned the joint list a moment ago, and the joint list was really an unprecedented success in the last elections in 2015. As you mentioned, it was you know these four Arab parties uniting in order to ensure that they would pass the electoral threshold and make it into the Knesset. And the result was 13 seats, a 13-seat joint list party for the past you know four and a half years, which actually made it, if I'm not mistaken, the third largest party in the last Knesset. However, now it's splintered. And we have Hadash and Tal um, running on one side, which is kind of a a more moderate, perhaps, Arab party. And on the other side are Balad and the Islamic movement, which is seen as more of a, a radical Arab party. W- what implications do you think? Well, first of all, did I get that right? And second, what implications do you think that has for the Arab community's turnout and representation in the next Knesset? Well, I would not go into such classifications of more moderate or more radical. After all, all our parties who participate, uh, take part in the Israelation, do acknowledge that this is the uh, Israeli parliament and, mm-hmm. and this is the Israel as a Jewish and democratic uh, state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would attribute, attribute this division to internal, uh, internal uh, negotiations between the parties involved. Uh, the result was a split, indeed, uh, from a union of four leading parties to uh, two smaller unions, uh, as, as, as you mentioned before. And apparently the celebration of the so-called Arab unity were premature. And I even heard some voices saying that, well, the formation or the establishment of the joint list was not the end of the process, but rather the beginning of one, hmm. meaning that they had uh, four years' time to work on, on the joint action, which apparently they did not have, uh, because uh, we learned that uh, the, the, the list was torn apart on the question of rotation between uh, the, the four components, and apparently it ended up three months before election day, at the beginning of uh, January, that uh, Ahmed Tibi, who is a very popular Arab leader in, in the Arab street, said that, uh, well, I, I withdraw from uh, the joint list. And it ended up that the four components regrouped again for uh, two smaller unions. Two weeks ago on the Battle for Balfour, we heard about the Israeli Central Election Committee's decision to ban the Balad party from the coming election because I think it was on the grounds that the party or the members of the party have supported terrorism in the past. But this week, the Israeli Supreme Court overturned that decision. What does this process mean for Arab-Israeli confidence in Israeli democratic institutions? Well, first, I have to make this clear. I, I would not go to such conclusions that they support the terror. The question was not whether they support or do not support terror. The question was uh, on the leading slogan, trying to convert Israel to a state of all its citizens. Well, the uh, Central Election Committee said that this was unacceptable because if you want to take part in this election, you have to acknowledge the fact that Israel is defined as a Jewish and democratic state. And since the uh, approval of the new basic law, the nation state law, you have to acknowledge the fact that Israel is the nation uh, state of the Jewish people. Hmm. So uh, this, is a, this is a typical routine every, uh, every election campaign. And eventually, uh, the Supreme Court uh, uh, returned this resolution and uh, approved uh, the participants of uh, F-Balad. Uh, anyway, about the implication on the Arab votes or the Arab voters, I would say it is more the, the conduct of the Arab parties themselves rather than the conduct of the uh, Knesset or the government. 
meaning that if the uh, our voters see that uh, the representatives are not acting in a joint, uh, they, they do not join forces together in order to bring a desired uh, common result, so uh, it would, uh, of, of course, disencourage them to go out and, and vote. Uh, if we speak, for example, on the nation-state law, well, we see that it is not a game-changer, it is not a game-breaker. Of course, they are not satisfied with the, the, the R voters, but this is not what really counts. What really counts is the conduct of the Arab members of Knesset. So, Ari, you don't expect the nation-state law to be a motivator that will increase Arab turnout in the coming election? Of course, they would be very happy if any uh, Jewish leading party would say, well, we are going to revoke the nation-state law. Uh, But we do not hear such uh, declaration on the part of uh, Likud party or or Blue and White led by Benny Gantz or even the Labour Party. So the Arab public does not have have high expectations about revoking this, uh, this basic law. Instead, they try to promote a more uh, civil discourse, meaning that we want to to make sure that there is a governmental plan to eradicate uh, crime and violence in the Arab sector. We want uh, the allocation of budget, meaning a new development plan for a long run uh, for the Arab localities. Uh, so, in my opinion, as I get it from, from you know, the, the media, the written and, and, and the radio broadcasts from, from the Arab sector, I feel a sense that uh, the, the nation state law does not play that significant role in this election campaign. If we move to talking tachlis, if we, uh, if we get down to brass tacks, what's it going to be? Will there be more than 13 seats represented by these two Arab parties in the next Knesset, or will there be fewer than 13? Uh, I have to be honest, on that, and I anticipate that it will be less than 13 seats. As you mentioned before, it was an unprecedented achievement. And uh, according to recent public opinion polls, we have the uh, Hadash and Tal winning uh, seven seats and, and uh, Balad with the United List winning, uh, with the Islamic movement uh, winning only four. So 11, between 10 and 11, a uh, total uh, that, that obviously would be uh, a blow to the other representation in Knesset. And this has mainly to do with the expected uh, turnout in the election day, which is expected to decrease uh, significantly, according to recent public opinion polls, uh, say, say that uh, some 55 to 56 percent, meaning a decrease of 8 percent, which is a large uh, proportion, uh, less in, in, this, in this coming election. And is there any chance that we might see the Arab parties or either of the Arab parties end up sitting with or supporting a center-left government? Should Blue and White get the most seats and Benny Gantz be asked to form the coalition? It is a possibility. Everything is possible in politics. Uh, I heard Ayman Ode, the leading of the former joint list and today leading of uh, Hadash, saying uh, he has some conditions for supporting Benny Gantz, but he said, first, uh, Benny Gantz has to come to Nazareth and to speak with us and to hear our demands. And then we can say that, uh, well, we support him for to be prime minister. Uh, this is the uh, election uh, campaign time, and uh, I think that we have to, to wait and see what eventually comes out with uh, the Blue and White Party. Today, we, some, some polls say that it's going to be a tight draw between the blue and white and Likud. And of course, what is going to be with uh, the our representation in the next message? 
Arik, thank you so much for joining us. We'll all be watching those issues closely. Thank you. My pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Pittsburgh. Good for the Jews? Since November, Pittsburgh has acquired an ominous tone in Jewish conversations. When we talk about Pittsburgh, are we talking about that great steel town in Pennsylvania Or are we talking about the mass shooting there that claimed the lives of 11 Jews in a synagogue? Now there's one more option. After the horrific massacre of 50 Muslim worshippers in two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand last week, the Jewish community of Pittsburgh sprang into action. Despite geographical and religious divides, the slowly healing Jews of Pittsburgh saw brothers and sisters in the newly bereaved Muslims of Christchurch. In just a few short days, the Tree of Life congregation has raised over $50,000 to send to New Zealand to support the victims, their families, and their communities. Someday, in a more perfect world, communities will not have to suffer as these two have. But today, in this fractured world, their unity and support for one another is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at Passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.